listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored, episode 156, a special summer edition. Hope you all are staying cool out there, especially if you are out there working, whether it's on the farm or in an Amazon warehouse. Uh, We're thinking about you, and in celebration of Amazon Prime Day, we're bringing you a special episode featuring workers' voices from both sides of the Atlantic, seeking to hold Amazon accountable. Quick note before we get started, we count on our monthly supporters to make this podcast possible and couldn't really make the show without your support. So if you are a regular belabored listener and you're not pitching in yet to support the show, please pause right now and head to dissentmagazine.org slash belabored to sign up to be a sustaining member. It only takes a minute. This episode of Belabored is also brought to you by our friends at Netroots Nation, the largest annual gathering of progressives in the country. It's August 2nd through 4th in New Orleans this year. 70 trainings and 100 panels focusing on the upcoming midterms, voting rights, election tools, and strategy, and of course, labor. And our very own Sarah Jaffe is speaking on two panels during the conference, alongside speakers like the illustrious Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Aijin Poo, Chokwe Antwar Lumumba, striking teachers from West Virginia, and many more. Go to netrootsnation.org and enter promo code BELABORED for a special discount on your ticket. And without further ado, President Trump just offered the Farmers of America a $12 billion bailout to help them weather this trade war that he started. But you know who really needs a break on the nation's farms? The workers drowning in the massive waves of hellish heat and toxic clouds of pesticides engulfing our golden harvests. But Scott Pruitt's EPA, before he was ousted, decided that now is the right time to upend regulation on one of the most poisonous pesticides currently on the market. And now a court challenge is racing against the clock to keep farm workers and their families safe, or at least safer, from devastating toxic exposures. According to Earth Justice, one of the advocacy groups working on the suit on behalf of workers, generally sprayed on crops, chloripyrifos is used to kill a variety of agricultural pests, has a slightly skunky odor, similar to rotten eggs or garlic, and can be harmful if it is touched, inhaled, or eaten. It is acutely toxic and associated with neuro developmental harms in children. Prenatal exposures to chloripyrifos are associated with lower birth weight, reduced IQ, loss of working memory, attention disorders, and delayed motor development. Now, if that's not enough to tantalize you, workers in the field have for years had their community health devastated by the widespread use of pesticides, and efforts to restrict the use of these chemicals on crops have been ongoing for a while. This latest setback, hand down from Pruitt, speaks to just one of the ways his anti-regulatory crusade continues to have impacts on environmental protections nationwide, even if he is no longer in office. And the fight continues as the administration moves towards consolidating the conservative majority on the Supreme Court under Brett Kavanaugh. I talked to Patty Goldman, an attorney at Earth Justice, working on the case, talking about what's at stake and how workers are being impacted now by this pesticide crisis. Uh, So the current case challenges the decision by Scott Pruitt uh, in March of 2017 uh, not to ban this pesticide. EPA had been on track to ban the pesticide. It would have been out of our food by October 2017. 
And this is because chlorpyrifos is a neurotoxic pesticide. It poisons workers uh, whenever they come into contact with it. Uh, and uh, it damages children's brains at even lower exposures. Things like reduced IQ, autism, attention deficit disorder, uh, every parent's nightmare. Um, and this has been correlated in, in numerous studies that EPA had made findings about this damage to children's brains and had found this pesticide unsafe. Under the law, that means it cannot be allowed to be used on our food. And so how was Pruitt then able to, um, presumably thinking that he had the legal authority to do this, um, to do this by regulation? And I guess what specific legal challenge are you bringing? Well, he just acted contrary to the science and the law. It was the most shocking thing that I've seen in my legal career uh, because he just didn't care. The law says if a pesticide is unsafe, EPA cannot allow it on the food. And here, EPA had found it to be unsafe. What he said is, oh, we want to continue to study the science and wait for five years to take regulatory action. What our legal challenge says is that's illegal. That violates the clear mandates that Congress put in place for protecting people and, and children in particular from hazards in our food. So um, it is currently not, it is banned for home use, is that right? Yeah, that happened 20 years ago uh, because of the dangers to children, and that was focused on the acute poisoning, not on the damage to children's brains. Uh, and then what EPA has found is that at really low doses, when women are pregnant, their children have had statistically higher occurrences of these various learning disabilities than types of brain damage. So what would be the justification for um, allowing this kind of exposure among workers and presumably the farm worker communities, which include children, because many of them live where they work, and the ban in home use? I mean, it seems like those two are at odds. Yeah, there really is no justification. I mean, what we've learned from Freedom of Information Act disclosures is when Pruitt came in, his chief of staff went to the EPA folks that were working on this and said, we don't want you to ban this. We know that's what you've done. Find a way not to ban it uh, by the end of March when there was a deadline. And they were just result-oriented. They did not want to ban this pesticide because it's used in agriculture you know, in fairly large amounts. It's a cash crop for Dow, um, you know, which is the main chemical company. In terms of workers, they, they face a, a triple whammy and their, and their families because they're exposed in food like everyone is. They have higher contamination in their drinking water because they're right around where the pesticides are used. And they're exposed because it drifts from where the pesticides applied and it gets to their homes and schools, daycares, play fields, hospitals, and, and so they're, they're, they're at the greatest risk from this pesticide. Uh, it's just unconscionable to keep letting people be exposed at the levels that are out there. Um, do you think that there's an element of discrimination here because they are farm workers, primarily Latino farm workers, many of them undocumented, low-wage workers versus, you know, everyday consumers? Well, I, I don't even really have to speculate. The way our law works is there's a higher standard for protecting people against residues of pesticide on our food uh, and in water than there is for protecting workers from the direct exposures on the job and in the field. 
Uh, and so on the one, you, you just cannot allow unsafe levels on our food, uh, but those same exposures are allowed for workers. Mm -hmm. So what, what types of harms are actively um, facing workers at this point who are subjected to this kind of exposure? I mean, do we see the results manifesting themselves already in their health or um, in, in their mental symptoms? Well, there are two types of harms. One is the acute poisonings, and this is there's no dispute. These pesticides, chlorpyrifos, is part of a class of pesticides that were developed as nerve gases in World War II, uh, and so it's not a surprise that they would poison people. What they do is they cause like extreme nausea and diarrhea and cramps and um, and, and sometimes it's seizures, uh, and it can even be like paralysis and death, although that's not as common. But you know, serious poisoning incidents. And, and to the extent we have reportings of that uh, in California and to some extent in Washington, chlorpyrifos is always one of the top pesticides associated with poisonings of workers, either directly on the job or from drift in neighboring fields. And it can drift, you know, half a mile or more. So, you know, that, that's the very well-documented, long-standing type of harm. The other one that is, is harder to pinpoint is this harm to children. So if, if you have a worker who's pregnant um, or, you know, the take-home exposures in the home of someone that's pregnant or young children, um, then we have this correlation uh, between the exposures and reduced IQ, motor development issues, um, coordination problems, autism, attention deficit disorder, and even structural brain defects. Um, that's harder to say oh, this particular person got this uh, learning disability from chlorpyrifos, but in controlled studies, they found that correlation. Um, and that's just you know, really tragic because it takes its toll on the individuals and the families and school systems and you know, the states that pay for the services. That is Patty Goldman of Earth Justice. In episode 154, we heard about Seattle, Washington's push for a domestic workers' bill of rights. And this week, that bill passed unanimously through the Seattle City Council. To tell us all about it, we have one of the workers who helped make that bill possible. My name is Tony Turan. Um, I, I'm 26. I've been a nanny, professional nanny, for almost four years. So tell me how you got involved in the organizing for the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. Yeah, so my friend, um, is she's she's an organizer um, for work in Washington, and she needed some help with some graphic design stuff or, like, some picnics and stuff that she was organizing. So, um, of course, I was like, yeah, of course, I'll help you. And, and then she started asking me to come to these meetings and um, panels and stuff like that, and I started getting a little more involved. And um, I got to meet other domestic workers, you know, people who clean houses and, um, you know, gardeners and things like that. And um, I think it was a really noble uh, cause. And I know that um, my friend is very passionate about this. Um, being an Annie herself, you know, she um, she knows what it's like. I mean, and I, I know what it's like, too. And, and I think it's a, it's a really good cause. So I started, you know, going to these meetings a little more frequently whenever my time you know, my schedule allowed me to, um, yeah. and yeah, that's how I got involved. What were some of the, the issues that people were talking about that were the most important to you? Um, well, I think the whole, to me, I feel like the, the, 
contract and um, basically like a, a fair payment, right? And I know that one of the things that they were uh, writing in the bill was like just basically making sure that uh, employers couldn't take our uh, documents. That I think was really important too because, you know, like that that can be pretty scary and like, I don't know, that's, and it, it, it's it's scary for, you know, some, for immigrants, right? Like people who are working um, and are immigrants. I also feel like the, the you know, overtime and all these things that, um, like breaks, uh, like, uh, like they have, like people who are cleaning houses or like working in gardening and things like that, that they, they, they must have a, a break and, you know, it has to be included, I guess, in like their hourly payment and like in their, in their salary, right? Like if, you know, if you take like the 30 minutes, like I'm an Annie and like that's, I, when the babies are napping, I can, I can eat, right? Or like if the babies are eating, I can eat. Uh, but some people don't don't get that, you know. So I think it's really important for for people to have access to that, and um, yeah, the contracts too, and just like overall, just having fair working conditions, not just for nannies, but for all domestic workers, right? And and it's it's hard, right? Because like we all have different needs, and we all, you know, it's it's what we do is all it's different, um, you know, even though it's 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 within the same like, like domestic work, right? Like bubble, but but it's all different, and we all have different needs. And it's, I, I feel like it's, it's overall we just need to make sure that we're being treated fairly. Um, yeah. And you know, in terms of hours and and payment and um, benefits. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about the Seattle bill to folks who've seen them pass in other places is the enforcement mechanism. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that's important? Well, so I think well, that is also another thing that I'm pretty excited about i feel like it's how like the way i got involved in it and how it it kind of empowered me to you know share my story and talk like reach out to other nannies and tell them to get involved too and it's just like um just just learn a little bit more about um you know these are the things that you can ask for like this is okay to ask in a contract um you know i remember telling this like put in and you know part of my story was just like how in the last three and a half years, like, you know, a lot of the times I was just not necessarily, like, confident enough or I was just, like, unaware and, like, misinformed and I just didn't really know what what could I, you know, what can I ask in a contract, like, what my hours should look like, if I should get paid, like, you know, if I should get overtime payment and, like, all those things. And the the way the, the, the standards board is supposed to work is I feel like it's a way for all of us, you know, to everyone have to have, you know, representatives there that will work together to you know, make these, make, make the policies and like make sure that everyone's treated fairly. And like, I, I also feel like my point is that I, the way that I got involved, I think that's really important for all of us to work in as a community and keep empowering other nannies and empowering other domestic workers so that, you know, it, it's, it, it becomes a standard and, you know, the, the payment and the hours and the overtime and the breaks and all these things. And, um, the standards were, would allow, um employers and employees and 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 city representatives to you know talk and uh just get together and make decisions together and so basically it gives it gives us a voice and i think to me the other part of the other important part about that is that employers will also have representatives so like employers would also have you know their voice heard and i you know working with families i know that and I've said this before, I feel like a lot of families do want to do what's right and they want to t- treat their nannies or, you know, house cleaners or whatever. They want to treat them fairly. 
Um, but sometimes they just don't really know what, what that means. Like, they're just, like, this is part of, you know, where I was going earlier with me, like, working for three and a half years and not knowing these things and, like, you know, coming to sign a contract and just being like, yeah, I mean, we can do this. I don't know. Like, we can, yeah, this is how much we can, you can get and um, not really talking about pay time off or, like, how many days I need it and, like, not really talking about my needs, but just, like, mm-hmm. you know, talking about it quickly and because families are nice and, like, of course, they're they're treating you. I've never had any experience where, like, I've been, I've been mistreated or, like, I feel like I've been, um, yes, I have been underpaid. And I have, I have had jobs where I don't have time off or I don't have, you know, sick days off. And, and the families are great. They treat me beautifully. You know, they, I'm part of the family and they tell me they love me all the time and it's, it's a great relationship. But, um, it's also because they didn't know, right? Like they didn't know that they could give me those things. And it's just, I also didn't ask. So, you know, it's, we're all not like, we were all misinformed. We, like we, we, we didn't know that that, that that was a thing. So, it took me three and a half years to figure out on my own, and I feel like, um, you know, I when I started getting more involved with working Washington, I now I'm able to tell other nannies, hey, no, this is okay to ask, and people who are new to the business, and just like, kind of spread the, you know, spread the word, and um, I think, you know, that's great, and if we can translate that to like the wage board and just make sure that everything is organized and. Um, I think that would be that would be great. That's a, that's a, it's a, there's a, a, a stronger sense of community. It's not just stinky out there for farm workers. It is damn hot, and the government doesn't seem to care much about that issue either. Recently, about 130 advocacy groups joined together to push a petition to federal workplace safety authorities to institute stronger nationwide standards for heat protection for workers, both indoor and outdoor, including the legions of agricultural workers who toil all day in lethal weather. They're vulnerable to heat stroke and other dangerous heat-related conditions, long-term respiratory illness, massive dehydration, and other health problems. It's also just downright inhumane to subject people to these dehumanizing working conditions, especially since many of these workers are Latino migrants, both documented and undocumented, with severe restrictions on their rights to organize at work, to speak out about unfair conditions, or even privately report abuse. Although some regions like California have taken extra steps to protect workers from the punishing heat, there remains an acute need for federal safety standards to protect all workers around the country. The groups warn that, quote, with record-breaking summers becoming the norm, outdoor and indoor workers across a variety of workplaces will be at greater risk for workplace heat illness. And according to a recent report by Public Citizen, Quote, over the July 4th, 2018 holiday week, an average of more than 2.2 million workers in the agriculture or construction industries worked in extreme heat each day. And an average of 1.1 million agriculture and construction workers labored in extreme conditions each day in July 2017. These included 265,000 agricultural workers, 851,000 workers in the construction industry. Every summer, our airwaves are full of PSAs reminding people to stay cool, to drink liquids, to check on our neighbors, to stay indoors, to find a cooling center, to take a dip in a pool if they can, to take care of vulnerable elderly and children in our lives who are more prone to heat-related illness and injury. 
but seldom do such messages apply to the workers out there every day, building our neighborhoods, feeding us our meals, but it's these invisible workers and their silent toil that makes it possible for us to enjoy our breezy lives of comfort safely indoors every summer. Caring about them is not just vital to our economy, it's vital to our sense of humanity. We've talked in our last few episodes about the Janus v. AFSME decision, and today we bring you a postscript to that story from Mark Janus's old union, AFSME's Council 31 in Illinois. Mark Janus has decided to retire from the union last week, and the union threw a retirement party for him, though he, perhaps unsurprisingly, chose not to attend. I spoke with Anders Lindahl of AFSME Council 31 about what Janus's career decision means for the union. So your most famous non-member um, just departed this week and uh, had a little little going away celebration to say goodbye to uh, Mark Janus. So tell us where he's off to take his uh, experience, I suppose. So Janus was the front for the Janus versus AFSCME Supreme Court case, but he, right. he was never anything more than that. The front uh, for the billionaires and the corporations who have funded political attacks through the courts on the freedom of working people to have a voice through strong unions over decades. It's actually a court case that was first brought by the billionaire right-wing governor of Illinois, Bruce Rauner, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to try to uh, silence the voice of public service workers in our union uh, and throughout the state of Illinois. And uh, when Rauner was dismissed for lack of standing, uh, the Rauner-funded state policy network affiliate uh, here in Illinois, the Illinois Policy Institute, right-wing front group like uh, folks might be familiar with in different parts of the country. There's the Freedom Foundation in the Pacific Northwest, the Mackinac Center in Michigan. They're all funded by the Kochs and the Rounders and the Dick U lines of the world and so on. Uh, Janice was their front for the last uh, few years for that case, and now uh, that uh, they've gotten the five to four ideological majority on the Supreme Court to do their bidding and rule against workers. They have rewarded Janus with a golden parachute of a position at the Rauner and Koch-funded Illinois Policy Institute. That's no surprise. Uh, Rebecca Friedrichs had fronted a similar case a few years ago and got a similar uh, soft landing from a right-wing group out in California. It is striking that, that these folks who supposedly are so angry about having to pay fair share fees to the union that they will take it all the way to the Supreme Court are not actually interested at all in keeping those jobs. Well, Janice had claimed uh, as the case made its way uh, up the legal ladder that he just wanted to do his job and serve the public. Um, so it is... Um, ironic, if again not surprising, that at uh, the first opportunity uh, he's now quitting uh, his public service job and going uh, to private profit and uh, not only uh, just seeking to cash in personally, but um, you know, going to work directly for the right-wing front groups that are trying to dupe workers into 
acting against their own best interests and quitting their union. We know that the Illinois Policy Institute and other state policy network affiliates have been revealed to have an $80 million quit campaign to try to dupe workers into acting um, against their own best interests and silencing their own voices by walking away from their unions. So how are things going within the union? Um, you know, tell me about the reaction from, among other things, Mark Janice's former coworkers and uh, your other members. Well, with the with the cautionary note that it's very early days, we're having this right. conversation Absolutely. just a month after the Supreme Court uh, decision came down, uh, and we know that that $80 million assault nationally on workers is forthcoming. It has not begun to roll out as aggressively in Illinois as they have piloted in other parts of the country so far, but with all those caveats, the very early signs are absolutely encouraging. Uh, we we started from a position of strength in Illinois. Uh, we represent about 70,000 active public service workers, and of those, more than 90% were already members when the decision came down. Fewer than 10% uh, had chosen to be only fair share fee payers. But in those first few weeks, uh, nearly a thousand of those former fee payers have signed up, signed a card, joined the union, and said, uh, you know, either I understand the value that uh, that the union provides for workers, and then it's the that it is the voice of workers when we stand together, and I want to contribute to that, uh, or and or they've said, you know, I understand that everybody in the workplace benefits, so everybody should share in the cost. Nearly a thousand fee payers have joined up as members and dozens more every day. On the other hand, only about a few dozen uh, former members have dropped since the Janus decision came down. So it's encouraging early signs. And that was Anders Lindahl of AFSME Council 31. Before we move into the interview, I'd like to remind you all that this episode of Belabored is brought to you by our monthly sustaining members and by Netroots Nation, the largest annual gathering of progressives in the country. It is August 2nd through 4th in exciting New Orleans this year, and it's going to be great. With 70 trainings, 100 panels on emerging issues in politics, inspiring keynote speeches, and lots of social events, this convention offers something for everyone. The panels and trainings focus on the upcoming midterms, voting rights, election tools and strategy, labor, and other important issues. You will have a chance to hear from some great speakers, including Ijen Poo, Lucy Flores, striking teachers from West Virginia, and Mary Catherine Ricker, alongside Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Kevin DeLeon, Chokwe Antar Lumumba, and more. And I will be there speaking on not one but two panels. Plus, there are tons of social events and opportunities to connect with other activists throughout the conference. You can go to netreachnation.org and enter promo code BELABORED for a special discount on your ticket. This past week was Amazon Prime Day, the newly minted capitalist holiday where the world's biggest retailer offers sweet deals on a random day of its choosing and its workers pay the price. This year, though, Amazon Prime Day was a target of actions around the world, and we bring you some updates from some of those actions. 
First off, we speak to an organizer from Germany who tells us about the coordinated strikes at Amazon fulfillment centers across Europe. My name is Niels Bülker. I'm working for the trade union Verdi in uh, the state of North Rhine-Westphalia. I coordinate uh, activities on the regional levels and uh, the organizers in the different um, companies that we um, try to mobilize. So we are talking a few days after there was a significant strike at Amazon fulfillment centers across Europe. Um, so can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about the strike and what happened? Well, it was a um, pretty much a regular strike in Germany because we are striking for six years now at uh, several Amazon fulfillment centers. And um, in North, the state of North Westphalia, Westphalia, where I work, um, we have two fulfillment centers where we strike quite frequently. And what was special about this strike is that um, we strike together in several um, European Union countries, uh, which is Spain, um, Germany, and there were um, working actions in Poland as well. Excellent, excellent. So, so it was an international strike. Uh, we had that just once before, I think. And this was uh, coordinated to occur around Amazon Prime Day, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, we try to coordinate about around special dates, our strike, and um, Prime Week and uh, Christmas time. It's usually the main uh, weeks where we strike. So tell us a little bit about the organizing across the countries to coordinate this strike this time. Um, actually, um, this time it was pretty much a strike that was um, coordinated by a far degree from uh, employees mm -hmm. uh, from Amazon who yeah. were... Um, who were mobilized by the unions and now working with the unions, but not actually are organizers or are employed by unions. And um, they coordinated the strike by just using regular uh, social media devices. And that's different than the previous strikes. Yeah, usually strikes are pretty much uh, organized by the employers, uh, employees of the trade unions who mm -hmm. are organizing um, the, the employees, employees of the uh, Amazon fulfillment centers, mm -hmm. and they um, call each other for coordinated strike action and meet for coordinated strike action, uh, usually on the, on the national level and uh, just very, very solemnly on the um, uh, international level. So tell us a little bit about the motivation then that the workers had for pulling together this um, international strike. What were some of the complaints that they're facing? Yeah, the, the problem with the strikes one national level within Europe is that um, Amazon has a really easy um, way to uh, work against the strike by just um, one click on the mouse. You mm -hmm. can... Uh, change the transport system of Amazon and uh, um, um, products can be um, brought from another nation to the um, customers in the nation that oh. is currently striking. So a strike on an international level is uh -huh. a lot more effective. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, can you say a little bit more about how that works? 
you know, Amazon has just like 12 centers in Germany. They have three or four in Poland. They have two in the Czech Republic, some in France, some in Spain. So if there's a strike in Germany, there's a good possibility that uh, the products are coming from Poland or the Mm -hmm. Czech Republic to the eastern parts of Germany and from France or Belgium to the western parts of Germany. And there's not really a problem for Amazon to work against the strike um, of the German workers. Yeah. So if you work on international level, you can be a lot more effective. So talk about the background of, of um, organizing at the Amazon Fulfillment Centers. How long has the union um, had a presence in the, the fulfillment centers? Uh, in Germany, actually, like... About eight years ago, we started organizing mm-hmm. uh, in just one or two fulfillment centers, and that was very basic trade union work by just um, driving with uh, um, public buses from the main stations to the fulfillment centers with the workers to them on their way to work and talking to them on their way back, mm-hmm. and so um, convincing them to join the unions. How many members do you have then that are, are fulfillment center workers at this point? Um, nationwide. Yeah. Oh, I, I really don't have the numbers nationwide yeah. by now. I can tell you about the fulfillment centers in, uh, in Germany. Yeah. That we have organization degrees in um, Weinberg. That's one of the fulfillment centers that is above uh, 54% now. And in Werner, which is the other um fulfillment center is um, around 30 to 40 percent and uh, we have a new fulfillment center that just opened um, half a year ago at dortmund yeah um and we are just organizing the workers there right now and uh, right now the level of organization is rather low mm-hmm. but we uh, we won the last um work, work council vote so we mm-hmm. have the majority in the Works Council now, and that will really help us organize um, some more workers mm-hmm. in Dortmund. So for an American audience, which most of our listeners are, um, can you explain what the Works Council is? The workers have their own uh, representatives within the companies, mm-hmm. that is, the Works Councils, and they are not necessarily trade union members. They can mm-hmm. be um, even against the trade unions um, and very much pro um, pro the, uh, in favor of the company, but they can, um, usually they are a lot more um, pro trade union and we try to organize the works council so that they work together with the trade unions mm-hmm. and uh, the big companies like Amazon. Looking back at, looking at how the strike went off, um, are people pleased with it? Well, last week, I think they were really, really successful. I mean, in the beginning, when we started striking at Amazon, Amazon um, tried to run several campaigns against trade unions mm-hmm. um, and got some workers behind these campaigns. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that the trade unions are talking bad about the uh, good working conditions at Amazon and they're trying to um, invade into the company and just do stuff on their own favor. So um, mm-hmm. that convinced some workers, but, but, the, but the majority of the workers actually are in favor of the trade unions, I think, are just uh, not working against the trade unions mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. So the campaigns of Amazon were not really successful. The strikes are now 
um, working better and better, and we are getting more members with every strike, and that um, got in the um, number of workers who were um, striking in the fulfillment centers in Germany mm-hmm. constantly over the last year. So looking forward and especially building off of this international organizing and the, the rank and file workers organizing, um, what are you looking for for next steps for building towards, I assume, more strikes? But um, um, Yeah, we need uh, especially more different strike strategies. I mean, mm-hmm. we started off just uh, striking the beginning of the shift and letting workers out of the company or out of the fulfillment center. And um, the next step was in several fulfillment centers that we stopped working during the shift and uh, just laid down the utilities and just moved out of the fulfillment centers. And in Rheinberg, we even made it to uh, strike for like one or two hours, then go back into the fulfillment centers mm-hmm. to um, force Amazon to pay the workers for several hours and then go back. And uh, they usually try to uh, work against the strike by hiring um, short-term working workers mm-hmm. for a couple of hours when they strike. So when we go back in, they have to pay the... Um, regular workers as well as the short-term mm-hmm. uh, workers and have to pay t- um, the twice as much um, income than we had and they have to pay um, when we not just don't strike. So we try to be very flexible in our strikes in order to um, do as much damage, damage as possible to the company. Yeah. And um, we try to reach further steps by striking longer, but we need a lot more strikes by the majority of the workers to reach further steps because um, otherwise it would not be that as effective as we intend our strikes to be. What kind of advice would you have for American Amazon workers who are looking to have some successful strikes of their own, maybe? Well, um, I mean, they really need um, good stamina because Amazon is a huge company and mm-hmm. uh, they try to try everything to um, outlast the strikes. And um, we had have strikes for six years now and we are still building up the movement. So um, it's not nothing you can reach for. Um, like uh, one or two, uh, with one or two strikes to get a collective bargaining agreement, that which is our which is our ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. But um, you need to organize um, as much workers as possible and mobilize them to work with the trade unions and strike um, on a coordinated level with all the fulfillment centers in the U.S. to really have an, have an impact with your strike. Mm. Just one thing is very important, um, that we will not give up our strikes. I mean, Amazon just tries to say that the strikes have no effect at all. And um, we know that they have effects, but we know that we need to be, be a lot better and we need to reach further levels of striking to really fight against the biggest um, online company in the world and the richest man in the world. And yeah. We will fight and we will eventually win.
That was Niels Bulke, and we will have more information about the European Amazon strikes at the Descent website. And over on this side of the pond in New Jersey, warehouse workers are also organizing with Warehouse Workers United. They are looking for rights on the job to organize better working conditions and hours. And they're holding Amazon accountable along with other mega retailers that subcontract out the jobs in many cases to third party employment agencies and temp agencies, uh, keeping these workers under extremely precarious conditions and escaping regulations. So we have a campaign that we are launching in New Jersey called Warehouse Workers Stand Up. And this is warehouse workers and their allies in labor and community organizations in New Jersey standing up to say, we need fair working conditions in this economic sector. And we are focusing on Amazon Uh, Because Amazon is the biggest, the richest, the fastest growing representative of this sector. What's happening, and I think we all see it, is as brick and mortar retail has shrunk, online retail has absolutely boomed. And I know that goes without saying, but what people don't realize is that behind that online retail is a massive network of warehouses that distribute goods to customers. And New Jersey is a focal point for locating warehouses because of our ports and our highways and our access to large consumer markets in New Jersey and New York. And companies like Amazon are growing, prospering, and expanding while the workers are not benefiting. And these are an important part of our future economy in the state of New Jersey. And I think people all over the world, frankly, are saying, this is our future. Amazon is gonna be a major employer on this planet in our future. Amazon is a trendsetter on this planet right now. And if we don't hold them accountable, we are all gonna suffer. And that's the big picture here. So we have a code of conduct, and it wasn't developed just for Amazon. It was a, it's a code of conduct developed by warehouse workers to say, this is what we need to see to make these jobs the kinds of jobs that people can live on, that can build the future that we want to see in our communities. Uh, and the code of conduct talks about fair pay that you can support a family on. It talks about full-time jobs, not part-time and so-called temp work. It talks about health and safety, where workers have a voice in enforcing safety in their workplaces. It talks about a right to organize free from coercion. It talks about fair production standards, because if you're being working under constant pressure to hurry and you don't have protection from unfair discipline at work, you really can't function decently as a human being and as a worker. So the code of conduct calls for those things. We want Amazon to adopt that code and we want them to hold their suppliers and their third party warehouses accountable for it too. They have the power to set standards in this industry and they need to do it because if they're gonna force everyone to race to the bottom, 
this is going to be a dim future for all of us. So that's what this is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about the role that Amazon itself does play in the overall workforce and governing what the working conditions are there. Um, I understand that you know other employers like Best Buy are also involved. Um, what is the what is the employment relationship? Um, are you employed by an outside agency? Um, are you subcontracted? How does it work? We are. Part of the Warehouse Workers Stand Up Coalition, our organization is a labor union. I am a union organizer by, you know, commitment and, and for many years for, you know, mostly immigrant, mostly low wage workers. And we in our union represent several thousand warehouse workers in New Jersey, uh, but there are tens of thousands of non-union workers in this industry in New Jersey, and the number is simply growing. And the work is done like this. So a retailer manufactures overseas, and then the work comes in through the ports, and it goes into warehouses. And warehouses are sometimes operated directly by retailers like Amazon, like Target, like Best Buy, like Macy's. They're sometimes contracted out to what are called third-party warehouse operators. And whether it's the retailer who's operating it or the online department store, which is really what Amazon is, right? I mean, Macy's is a department store and they have a warehouse. Target is a department store and they have a warehouse. Amazon is just a massive online department store run out of warehouses. And whether it's the department store like Amazon running its own warehouse, paying people with paychecks with its name on them, or whether it's sent to a third party, uh, where it's a different company running the warehouse on behalf of that retailer or department store, you see a mix and the mix of employment options are not favorable to workers. You see a group who are directly employed by the entity and who are treated as regular full-time employees. They don't make $15 an hour. Their benefits are too expensive. Their production standards are not fair, but they are treated much better than the other tiers which are so-called part-time workers. There's an enormous excessive use of part-timers. And when I say excessive, it's really a way to not create full-time jobs. You know, if you need some part-time work, you need some part-time work. But what we see across the board in these warehouses is the creation of enormous numbers of so-called part-time jobs, just as a way to get around giving people health insurance, just as a way to give workers the sense that they don't have the right to expect raises, that they don't have the right to expect benefits because they're just part-timers, that they don't have the right to expect to have a job for the long term because they're merely part-timers. And with temps, uh, you see warehouse after warehouse where you might have a third of the warehouse, so-called regular employees, the other two-thirds of the people in there work for one or multiple temporary agencies and employees may show up full-time to the same work site for years in a row as so-called temps. And by labeling them as temps, the message is you don't have a right to job security. You don't have a right to benefits. You don't have a right to paid time off. We don't even acknowledge your existence as an employee, 
and you could be gone any day, you don't have the right to file a Department of Labor case against us if we don't pay you right. You don't have the right to file an NLRB case against us if we don't respect your union rights. It's treating this massive swath of workers, mostly immigrants, uh, majority women, but you know, women and men, as third-class citizens. I mean, second class doesn't do it justice. It treats them as disposable employees. Here today, gone tomorrow, no voice, no say, no right. If these are subcontracted workers, um, are you actually taking industrial action today? Um, and if you're engaging in a work stoppage, or what is the risk of engaging in a work stoppage, um, given that uh, you do not have a full-fledged union yet? Look, workers have rights to stand up to their bosses in this country, and people have got to hold this industry accountable. We can hold them accountable at the individual work site, or we can hold them accountable on a higher level. And the code of conduct is about holding them accountable across employers. We are putting this code of conduct on Amazon's shoulders saying, you should follow it and you should call on others to follow it. Um, we are also, we also think frankly that the state, that the government should be implementing this code of conduct before it gives subsidies, give tax breaks and development subsidies in this industry. And so the workers who are pushing for this code of conduct right now, um, just to clarify, um, you do not have a union yet. Is that something you would want to work towards? And um, are there specific provisions built into the code of conduct that uh, make it easier to organize on that scale? I mean, I myself am uh, an advocate. I'm a coalition member, but we, on behalf of our labor union, um, but in the code of conduct, workers have included the right to organize free from coercion because, you know, they need that in order to be able to organize in peace. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the, in fact, in this country, there are to some extent labor laws that recognize joint employers. And if you're a temp working for a long time in a location, you know, you should not feel that you don't have legal rights because you have many legal rights. But there's no doubt that the reason employers use so many temp agencies is to minimize the legal rights folks have and to make it as hard as possible for them to exercise. But, you know, there are still rights out there. There are still rights out there to organize. There's certainly still rights to wage an hour, uh, you know, enforcement and, and other rights. Right now, we're in a situation where we have um, states kind of, uh, you know, falling, uh, falling all over themselves to impress Amazon and attract their headquarters, um, thinking that these will be, as you said, the jobs of the future, um, offering them all sorts of incentives to attract them to uh, said state. Um, I believe New Jersey is among them. Uh, is there anything that New Jersey could do? for workers to guarantee that there is a baseline of uh, rights and entitlements and protections for workers if the state is trying so hard to get these types of jobs in? Yes. One thing that the state really should do is require that before you can get tax breaks or development subsidies, 
in the warehouse industry that you have to pay a living wage, provide health insurance, let people organize free from coercion, have reasonable standards, have a, a forum for employees to have a say in their safety, in fair discipline, and other matters. And that's a minimum thing that states should be doing. And if we want this to be a future that we all want to live in, they need to do that. Beyond that, frankly, you know, we've seen examples in other states, say in New York State uh, a number of years ago, where they actually implemented a separate minimum wage for the fast food industry because they saw and advocates spelled it out for them and fast food workers spelled it out for them that this was an industry that was making tons of money that was exploiting workers all across the state. And I believe that New Jersey and and other states that have large numbers of warehouses, but certainly New Jersey, should be seriously looking at that. If this, this is the fastest growing sector of the New Jersey economy, and, it's, and the factors driving that are not going anywhere. The factors driving that are the increase in online retail, the ports of New Jersey, and New Jersey's physical location and its highways. And these things are not going to change. And the escalating growth of online retail, the decline of brick and mortar sales, just it's a boom and it's we have to take advantage of it to create living wage jobs. And the state should really think about that kind of requirement. Why shouldn't warehouse workers get 15 now? The state right now is thinking about raising its minimum wage from $8.60 an hour to $15, which we certainly wholeheartedly support. But we know that when, if that passes, and we hope it does, it'll take years to get to 15. Why shouldn't warehouse workers make 15 now in this really important sector of the economy where the employers are making out like gangbusters? Given the legal landscape involved, um, first of all, on the state level, but also under the Trump administration more broadly. Um, we had a period in which warehouse workers specifically um, saw some gains at the NLRB with joint employer laws. Um, that all is potentially being rapidly unraveled right now by this administration on the national level. Um, and even with the $15 minimum wage, um, you're seeing that run into some obstacles um, in the state house. Um, what are you doing on each of those fronts to address this, either through this campaign or perhaps on a, on a broader level for all New Jersey workers? Well, in terms of the, the federal government issue and the, the concerns about possible erosion of the gains that workers have made in recent years on joint employer issues, that's really a profoundly serious concern. And it's, it will be a heartbreaking thing if those gains are eroded because people are so abused when people employ them and pretend not to and are not held accountable. But we are not relying on those laws to improve standards for warehouse workers. We are focused on bringing public attention to what's going on in this industry, to putting a face on the thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands in this country, hundreds of thousands of invisible hands that are packing those boxes, they're showing up on people's doorsteps 
all across America every week in ever-increasing numbers. You mm-hmm. click a button and you get a package and there are people who packed it. They're working themselves hard in warehouses all over New Jersey and all over this country. And they need a decent standard of living because they are human beings too. You can stick, you can call them temps. They're still people. You can call them part-timers. They're still people. They still have families. They still need to sleep. They still need to eat. They still need to pay the rent. And they are our neighbors. And we are putting a face on what's behind those packages popping up on people's doorsteps. We're starting now, and we want to really get the word out in New Jersey and in New York, which is the same consumer area. You know, it's the same consumer zone. There's millions and millions and millions of consumers pointing and clicking in northern New Jersey, all over New Jersey, New York City. And this is the human face that is behind those packages. And we believe that we have to raise the public's consciousness. We cannot count on whatever gains have been made in board law in the last eight years. We know that. And frankly, I do think that the, the, that the, that Trenton, New Jersey, with the new governor and, um, and a lot of progressive folks can also really make a difference here. Phil Murphy actually came out last fall and really and participated in one of the first demonstrations on the question of wage standards for warehouse workers that we had in the state of New Jersey. He showed up when he was candidate Murphy and, um, you know, he has been receptive and supportive of this issue. And I do believe that Trenton can make a big difference. Well, first of all, describe the size of the, um, the warehouse workforce that you're organizing on behalf of in New Jersey. How many workers is it? Uh, what types of workers are they? Um, what types of background do they have? And is there a history of either unionization or uh, union busting um, in the sector in New Jersey and, and perhaps beyond? So the New Jersey State Department of Labor and Workforce Development uh, says there are 382,000 workers in transportation and logistics in the state. And logistics really means what we're talking about, which is warehouses that exist for the purpose of getting product to the consumer from the manufacturer who's overseas through the port and then to the consumer. And in warehouse work alone, the state says there are 40,000 folks in New Jersey who were, who are working in these warehouses, 40,000. And the sector grew 20% in the last 10 years. And it's expected to continue growing rapidly. It's the fastest growing sector of work in, in the state. And the workers are, it's a wide mixture of workers in terms of who's working there, but the majority of the workers are immigrant workers, probably 60% women. And, you know, it's certainly an industry where you see people working side by side from multiple countries, including the United States. You know, you see African-Americans and Filipinos and Mexicans working together in a plant, uh, Puerto Rican, New Jersey residents, white warehouse workers. So it's a mixture of folks, but it's predominantly immigrants. It's probably um, slight, uh, somewhat of majority women working in this industry. And in terms of the history of exploitation in the industry, 
one of the primary sources of the exploitation of the exploitation in the industry is the dynamic with the temp agencies where the majority of workers in a building may be treated as essentially disposable not real employees even when they've worked there for one two three four years under the guise of a temporary worker and is that movement towards the tempification of these workers that increasingly precarious attachment to the central company is that a trend that has grown in recent years because it seems like that is where a lot of this just-in-time uh, supply chain uh, work is going I think it's just it's been a cornerstone of how this industry has been operating for a good 20 years mm-hmm. and the whole industry is growing so that piece is growing but it's really a cornerstone of how they operate and uh, the use of so-called third-party warehouses is another cornerstone so if you're Amazon you stick your name on a warehouse and it may be a big warehouse it might have a thousand people in it But at the same time, you have a network of warehouses that don't have your name on them, but that are in fact doing work for you. They're either doing all the work for you, all the work in there is for you, or just as often, a substantial portion of the work in a warehouse with a different name on it, run by a different company, is actually going to Amazon every week. And so it's a way of disassociating You know, uh, a company with a high profile name like an Amazon or a Target or a Best Buy of disassociating that name, which they want to protect from the real practices impacting the workers. So we had at our we had a demonstration in front of the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Avenel, New Jersey on Tuesday. And one of the speakers was a high low operator named Liliana, who's worked for 10 years at a warehouse that doesn't have Amazon's name on it, that does tons of work for Amazon, so much work for Amazon that Amazon occasionally tours the facility, never asks how the workers are treated, never asks how they're paid. And after 10 years, as a high-low operator, she makes $10.90 an hour, which is outrageous. So here's a mom, single mom, two kids, with an actually, you know, she has a skill, She's operating a high-low, making $10.90 an hour after 10 years, and she does lots of work for Amazon, but she is not an Amazon employee. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of subterfuge and kind of the game of veils, you know, hiding these workers behind the names of companies no one's ever heard of, the names of temp agencies no one has ever heard of or cares about, and yet they're doing work for the biggest names out there in retail. Right now, we are looking at a week where we just saw workers striking um, in Germany, um, in Europe, in Amazon, uh, taking action there. They do have a union. Um, And um, how do you see this reverberating in the global Amazon workforce? Um, And um, have there been solidarity efforts um, cross borders? given the incredibly globalized nature of Amazon's operations? I think that there's an incredible opportunity for solidarity across borders. I think what's really exciting that's happening right now is you can just see people waking up 
across not just the country, but the world to this reality of this online retail future driven by this behemoth corporation. And people are ready to stand up to that and really ready to throw down and even without coordinating with each other. I mean, what's to me incredibly powerful is that it wasn't coordinated. It, it was not coordinated. These are separate entities, including us, who have been waking up to this reality, starting to mobilize, starting to organize at a local level, building up, ready to throw down. And lo and behold, we discover that people are seeing what we are seeing all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there's an amazing opportunity for cross-border organizing, and clearly that should happen. But what's powerful is how authentically grassroots the uprising is. There's no one out there, you know, who called us on the phone and said, hey, let's, let's do, you know, we want to do national actions against Amazon during Prime Week. Why don't you jump on board? You know, there are multiple entities. There are grassroots organizations, labor organizations, workers, advocates, all over the place who have been waking up to the same reality and saying, we have to start this fight now. We have to start because we cannot let this go on without any reasonable standards and unchecked. Currently, we're looking at a retail employment landscape where everyone is talking about the sky falling on retail, the so-called retail apocalypse. Um, But on the other hand, we have organizers like you pointing out that, look, the retail workforce is not going away. It's just morphing into this different form uh, in this different industry that is operating primarily online, often under even more degraded conditions than traditional brick and mortar stores. How do you see this um, kind of inheriting some of that earlier wave of retail worker organizing, since this is the new retail model um, that we'll be seeing in the coming years? And um, what do you say to people who say that, you know, oh, retail is dying all over the country? I say retail is not dying. Retail is booming, but it is just reconfiguring. And even the warehouses themselves are reconfiguring because. Amazon aside, there were tens of thousands of warehouse workers in New Jersey 20 years ago because of the ports. When manufacturing went overseas, warehouses became necessary for the retail industry because you can't put all your stockpiles in a store because a store is located, you know, in a high rent area and you can't, you can't warehouse there and, and, and companies don't. But what's happening is that the retail industry has just undergone a sea change. And the warehouses themselves have undergone a sea change. So that warehouses that 20 years ago boxed their stuff and sent it to the store, now send it some to the store. They send boxes or pallets of boxes to Amazon for Amazon to sell through their online department store. And they also do individual fulfillment of customer orders. They do individual fulfillment of customer orders for Amazon. They do individual fulfillment of customer orders for name brands, you know, Nike, Donna Karen, Target, brands we've heard of. Um, And 
the whole industry is booming, but it's morphed into a new form. And, uh, but consumers are consuming. I mean, we all see those boxes pouring into, you know, our residential communities, whether you live in a house, or you live in an apartment building, people point, click, their stuff is coming. Retail is booming. Amazon is, you know, richer than Midas and getting richer. But what's going to happen with the workers? Mm-hmm. We have to make them visible and we have to make the issue visible. The bricks and the mortar may be going away, but the the, uh, the human resources are definitely not in this sector. <laughs> that That is right. And, and particularly in New Jersey, where this is such a pervasive sector, you could drive through communities in New Jersey, industrial areas, and just see warehouse after warehouse after warehouse after warehouse across central New Jersey, Middlesex County, Union County, uh, Bergen County. I mean, you just building after building after building after building, and there are just tens of thousands of workers, and they are, they're your neighbors. They are our neighbors. They're everybody's neighbors. And if they're making poverty wages, if they don't have proper health insurance for their kids, if they don't have predictable schedules, which is just an incredible abuse, that people can't know from week to week what day of the week they're going to work, what hour they're going to report, what hour they're going to finish. You know, these are just abuses that undermine quality of life for people and communities in a profound way. And we have to just, we have to stand up to this. And that was New Jersey warehouse worker organizer, Megan Chambers. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. My pick for this episode is Andrew Strom's piece on the On Labor blog. It's called Brett Kavanaugh, Common Sense and Class Prejudice. It gives us some insight into what kind of Supreme Court we could expect under Brett Kavanaugh. It's no surprise that he has a track record of making regressive anti-worker decisions on basic issues of workplace regulation and occupational safety. Besides the decisions that impact the material conditions on the job, what goes on inside the mind of Judge Kavanaugh when he's deciding how workers should behave on and off the job when it comes to representing their workplace? It all comes down to a rather cultural view of how workplace relations work and how the judge's personal perspective might color how he views what is considered appropriate conduct for workers. Not surprisingly, it has a lot to do with one's station in life. Strom starts the tale of a simple t-shirt and a contract campaign led by unionized AT&T workers with the Communications Workers of America. It happened in Connecticut back in 2009. Quote, in order to gain more leverage in those negotiations, CWA waged a public campaign to notify AT&T's customers that the union believed that AT&T was mistreating its workers and that the workers were united. One part of that campaign included having workers wear union t-shirts while they worked. Workers had long been allowed to wear t-shirts with slogans, including slogans in questionable taste. They might include, quote, support your local hookers, 
quote, the liver is evil and must be destroyed, etc., etc. The union then designed their own t-shirts with writing on the front that said, quote, inmate number, unquote, and writing on the back that said, prisoner of AT&T. And instead of an ampersand, it has a little dollar symbol. So Southern Northeast Telephone Company litigated this case before the National Labor Relations Board. It went to the D.C. Circuit Court. So here's what Judge Kavanaugh said. AT&T Connecticut banned employees who interact with customers or work in public, including employees who enter customers' homes, from wearing union shirts that said inmate on the front and prisoner of AT&T on the back. Seems reasonable. No company, at least one that is interested in keeping its customers, presumably wants employees walking into people's homes wearing shirts that say inmate and prisoner. So the idea here is that these are signs of some sort of uh, threatening or perhaps menacing worker, at least a a disorderly worker, and uh, that doesn't give a very good impression of the company, uh, nor does it give a very good impression of the company to imply that uh, these people are prisoners of their boss. Now, this all depends, Strom reminds us, of your idea of common sense. And what's common sense for your average telephone worker ain't what's common sense in a court of law, much less the court of an Ivy League-educated judge with a business-centered view of the world. Kavanaugh, given his background, is more likely to view the situation from the perspective of the boss or maybe the customer than that of the workers who are, ironically, part of a union of communications workers. Communications workers who are gagged at work every day, apparently. Strom says that from the shop floor, quote, the problem with Judge Kavanaugh's common sense is that the common sense of the corner office is different from the common sense of the corner barber shop. Of course, if you have the power to hire and fire and to set wages and benefits, it's easy to promote civility. Sure, I just made it impossible for you to pay your bills this month, but can't you keep your voice down while we escort you from the premises? And that is the logic that was applied when it came to the corporate-centric view of what was considered civil versus uncivil uh, on that t-shirt. Does anyone honestly think that a worker wearing a logo that is vaguely redolent of an old-fashioned striped jail uniform, this is like the equivalent of the Hamburglar striped suit, um, is going to be mistaken for an actual prisoner in, say, an orange jumpsuit on a special work release program or something? Come on, only the most precious bourgeois pearl-clutching soft-handed observer would find such an image offensive. So what's really going on in this picture? The workers are making a clear statement about their material conditions. They feel like prisoners of their boss because their lives are completely controlled by a job that may not pay them a living wage that they deserve, or the boss is keeping them from speaking out about their working conditions, even if this is a right enshrined in labor law. And much of this question of civility at work turns on where we draw the line on free speech. This is an issue at the heart of Janus, which seems to bifurcate First Amendment rights and union rights in the public sector. Whether or not you think that ruling in Janus v. AFSCME was a justified restriction on union fees collection, it raises the crucial question of why we must put a legal firewall between our self-expression in the public sphere as citizens and our self-expression as workers. As we've noted many times before on Belabored, there's a long and sordid history of using the courts to constrain workplace political rights so that today work is effectively rendered a constitution-free zone. But why can't workers have both, the right to speak freely and the right to a decent workplace? Because your workplace even if it's a union shop, is still the boss's house. As Strom concludes, 
quote, if you are a rank-and-file worker, you might think it's just common sense that Connecticut AT&T's treatment of its workers was more offensive than the T-shirt the workers wore to publicize that treatment. And now the workplace, it might not just be your boss's house, it might be Brett Kavanaugh's house. A man, a judge, who thinks the free market knows no boundaries, but our Bill of Rights apparently doesn't apply the minute we step into the places where we earn a living every day. This week, the New York Daily News, a paper for which I've recently written, laid off 50% of its staff, including most of its digital department. The reaction from across the news media and the New York City community was outrage. Even Andrew Cuomo expressed concern and offered a potential bailout. But it's not that the New York Daily News is broke, or at least it wasn't until recently. And so the piece I wish I'd written this week is Albert Bernanke at Deadspin, titled, How Is This Shit Legal? You see, the Daily News is owned by what Bernanke accurately describes as a publicly traded media looting hell company, Tronk Incorporated. And Tronk just gave its departing chairman $15 million on his way out the door, despite his departure having been hastened by sexual harassment allegations. Yep. In order to fix its sudden $15 million budget hole, there go dozens of jobs, dozens of people laid off to pay a golden parachute to a rich harasser. The outrage is everywhere, but it is especially pure in this piece, as in so many others. But really what it does well is to note that this is class war, that laying off a bunch of working journalists, including, I should note in the interest of full disclosure, a friend of mine, is in order to line the pockets of an already rich jerk is literally upward wealth distribution. And as he notes, this is, well, this is just how capitalism works. He writes, quote, it's legal to do this. It's legal if you're rich enough or carefully enough obscured behind the legal fiction of a hedge fund or corporation to borrow vast sums of money, purchase a company with it, and then simply pass that debt along to the people who do the company's work and make its products by stripping their jobs so you can redirect their salaries toward debt payment. It's legal to decide freely that you will pay a disgraced former executive tens of millions of dollars all at once rather than over a period of years, or rather than going to court to argue you shouldn't have to pay a guy $15 million for not being able to keep his hands to himself, and then recover some of the cost just by straight up taking people's livelihoods away from them. It's legal for the parasites who buy an ownership stake in your company to decide they will appropriate your livelihood for themselves. It's legal for them to say that your wages and healthcare must pay their debts for them. It's legal for them to drain your employment for the their enrichment it's legal to purchase a company for the sole purpose of liquidating it laying off all its workers and keeping the money for yourself end quote i do not have a whole lot to add to that other than to note that every single media outlet that still survives these days is to some degree or another subject to the whims of a handful of rich people most of them men and that we are all in their hands to some degree or another support your local indie media while we're still around That is all we have time for this week. If you are an Amazon warehouse worker or a Seattle domestic worker struggling with the heat wave or the fallout of the Janus decision, we want to hear from you. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or write us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Thank you to our advertisers who are helping us make this show better, and a special thank you, as always, to our sustaining members who give monthly to keep us coming. You can become a member, get your sweet belabored tote bag, digital subscriptions to Descent, and more, too, at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. Thanks, as always, to Descent for supporting us for over 150 episodes, and thank you to Natasha Lewis for editing all of them. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. 
For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>